Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello. Hi there. Hey, you. Uh, I'm Owen Jones, obviously. Well, not obviously. It just seems a bit weird that you'd have stumbled onto this show if you didn't have a basic sense of who I am. Um, this is this is live. Unless you're listening on the podcast, which please do, if you've not got stuck in, do get stuck in to our podcast. Give us five stars just to, just to get the word out. So today I'm torn between being in a good mood because the weather's really nice. And it's kind of weird how much of an impact that has on your mental health during a national calamity. But also in a bit of a grump if I'm going to be honest, largely because of the Labour leadership. Now, in terms of doing a show about this, it is quite masochistic. Just part of me just wishes we just didn't have to talk about this ever again, actually. But alas, we are trapped in the never-ending Labour Party show. And what we're talking about today is Keir Starmer's leadership. What's the big deal? What's the big idea? What's it doing? What's its what's his game plan? And the reason we're talking about it is we've ended up in a situation where Labour is finally opposing the Tories. I mean, we were encouraging them to do that. So that's, you, you'd think, an improvement. What we weren't quite betting on is that they would oppose the Tories on hiking corporation tax and a windfall tax on companies which have profited from the pandemic. Be careful what you wish for, I suppose, is 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 the lesson there. Now, as we've spoken a lot about a lot on the show, this is the midst, obviously, of the worst national emergency since World War II. We have one of the worst death tolls on Earth, one of the worst death rates on Earth, one of the worst economic consequences on Earth, and the Conservatives are getting away with it. Their poll lead is increasing. And I'm afraid... A lot of the reason for that is, yes, the fact we have an extremely aggressive partisan right-wing press, which essentially functions as the propaganda arm of our government. But the Labour Party has failed pretty comprehensively to pin this catastrophe on the government. Now, I'm going to stop moaning because I'm bored of my own moaning and I'm, I'm sorry to have to inflict this upon you. And we're going to have a good discussion about this, I promise. I'm going to... I'm going to get a little bit more enthusiastic and less jaded. I'm going to bring in our two brilliant guests who are James Schneider, who is a former senior aide to Jeremy Corbyn, and also Zoe Williams, who is my beloved colleague at The Guardian. But they're not in the... Oh, there they are. Hi. 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 We'll keep doing that. Okay. Um, Let's just start, shall we? Should we just kick off with the current situation as regards corporation tax? And, and let's just talk about their logic, okay? This is the logic being presented by the leadership at the moment. The argument that's being presented is actually this is Keynesianism because there is an economic 
disaster and we need to recover from it. And whilst there, there may well be a time for future tax rises, which was a solemn commitment of Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership, this isn't the time for it and therefore Labour should oppose them. James, why don't you start by just responding to, I suppose, as you see it, what that argument is and, 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 and what you think about it? I mean, it's economically nonsense. And the, the argument is that um, you don't want to raise taxes because you don't want to reduce demand in the economy. But you could um, raise taxes and increase spending on various things. So the idea that increasing corporation taxes in some way taking demand out of the economy uh, like, isn't looking at the whole picture at all. But it's politically even worse than it is is stupid economically. Um, the first time they used this line about how we don't want tax rises in a pandemic was last summer to try to head off the idea that we wanted wealth taxes. It was something that was being discussed in the shadow treasury team, apparently. And to head that off, they said, no, 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 we can't have any tax rises, regardless of who they're on um, during the pandemic. And what's really sad about it is you've got this huge opportunity to shape uh, what is going to be the defining argument, basically, of the rest of this decade, which is who pays for the pandemic and what is the recovery going to going to look like, and that we have an incredible opportunity to lead where the overwhelming majority of the pu- public already are, which is in favour of wealth taxes, higher taxes on uh, big business, higher taxes on the rich, and a windfall tax on those who have done really well out of the pandemic. And you know, the pandemic has exacerbated inequality. It's not just revealed it, it has extended it dramatically because the biggest single government policy has been quantitative easing. So the thing that you've seen, the reason why billionaires have got so much richer in the pandemic and the rich have got so much richer in the pandemic is not because the uh, bits of the economy that they're active in, that their companies and their businesses have been doing really, really well because they're super innovative or something. It's because share prices and property prices have been supported massively by a huge dose of money creation by the Bank of England. Now, these are the things that we should be talking about because it's the case to reverse those policies, to do something really very different. And rather than than basically being able to have that argument and on a ground where the majority of the population really wants uh, progressive policies, we've just come up with some really clumsy, clunky, technocratic and false arguments that somehow raising taxes on the rich is bad. I don't know. It, it feels like the... Um, you know, the, their equivalent of when people were saying, oh, scrapping tuition fees is really reactionary. I mean, it's just it's just a weird thing. It's just wrong. I mean, what do you think, Zoe? Because obviously in the leadership election, the so-called 10 pledges, Keir Starmer, I think number one pledge actually, was to increase taxes on the top 5% and on corporation tax. Joe Biden is no raging lefty. Uh, they're incre- his, his administration is committed to increasing corporation tax uh, by seven points, seven or eight points. Public opinion overwhelmingly supports increasing corporation tax. Uh, Tory voters, but even more so amongst Labour voters. I mean, what do you think? What 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 do you think their rationale is, and what what are your thoughts? So there are two. Their, their first rationale is, as James says, they're kind. They think they're talking about basic Keynesianism. You know, don't any tax rise sucks demand out of the economy, and they're wrong to frame it like that because it's just a misunderstanding. What I think is actually slightly worse is that they're making a secondary argument, which is that any corporate, any um, rising corporation tax 
will inevitably be kicked back either to the consumer in, in terms of higher prices or clawed back from the employee in terms of lower wages or poorer conditions. And that is a worse argument of anything because it, it does that kind of post-new labour, pre-Corbyn thing where you frame everything as though corporations are naturally kind of stronger and badder and not much can be done about them, but you can kind of pick up the pieces from whatever it is they've done wrong now. So it's sort of kind of, it, it's like a very, it's, it's, it's like a very disempowered, quite craven model of social democratic politics in which business is necessary, but rapacious and the state can be a kind of slightly crap umbrella against whatever conditions are rained down on by rapacious businesses. And I would hate to see them go back to economic thinking like that. The, 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 what I think the problem is here is not actually what James diagnoses, i.e. that they've made that kind of new labour reckoning and decided that any tax rise is a bad look for them. I think the problem is they just don't have a plan, right? They don't know what their long-term corporation plan is. They don't know what their long-term plan is for tax rises generally. They, they, they want that 10 pledge about that one of those 10 pledges about increasing taxes for the top 5%. They didn't really flesh that out or put any anything on its bones. So everything the Tories do looks like a bear trap because it is a bear trap. If you don't have a plan, then you know, you agree with the Tories, you're you're kind of working with them, you disagree with them, you're being outflanked to the left, you disagree with them on the left, you're being chased off your own territory. You know, there's there's absolutely nothing you can do in terms of these in terms of the kind of budget unless you have a plan of your own. Now I think I, I actually think Annalise is is kind of I think she's interesting. I think she's a genuinely interesting person and an interesting thinker. And a lot of people think that she, you know, she is no in terms of character, she's no John McDonnell. Um and she's very much kind of in the, you know, very wonky canny mode of labor cha- labor shadow chancellor you know this this person isn't gonna make a mess rather than this person is going to be very flamboyant in their thinking but i don't i don't necessarily have a problem with that and i don't think her politics uh i don't think i you know i, I think her politics are more complicated than oh she's you know just the kind of new variant rachel reeves but the, the fundamental problem is that they're not they're not making their plan they're not making they're not laying down their long term plans well enough and they're not making their short term responses fast enough or good enough and that and the the one leads to the other. I mean the thing is, even if we to accept their logic or their argument about corporation tax, and that that at some you know un, undisclosed point in the future they would back such a high because they promised to do during the leadership election. What you'd expect a progressive Labour leadership to do is to go, "Well, hey, this is an open door which we can push." Uh, for over a decade, the Tories and their right wing allies have said over and over again that if you slash corporation tax, then you get more tax revenues in, and that whole argument has been completely abandoned by the Conservatives. And then they should say you'd expect a progressive Labour leadership to go, this is an opportunity for us to have an even bigger, wider conversation about tax. We can always outflank the Tories on who is more progressive on tax, about how we create a tax system which 
which ensures that those booming at the top of society pay a fair share to help invest in our society and build a new society, which is fair and just that we all deserve. But that isn't the argument they're making, is it? I mean, that's the point. There's no political argument being made. I mean, this is the thing that's characterised a lot of Keir's leadership so far is basically running away from making any political arguments at all. I mean, rather than making, taking on, and by political arguments, I mean arguments about what kind of society we want to live in, how should we intervene and not intervene into with the state into the economy. Rather, it's all been very managerial and, and technocratic and very processy. Um, and exactly as Zoe says, it doesn't seem to have any guiding principles. So if it doesn't have any guiding principles, then you're left floundering. And, you know, that's exactly what we what we see now. Yes, the what the Labour leadership should be doing, um, and it's not just it should be doing this from a socialist point of view, it should be doing this from uh, a social democratic or even a social reformist point of view, is seeing that, as actually Keir said in his speech the other day, what is necessary and what's possible to do has been changed by the pandemic, and then to actually say what that is to create new dividing lines with uh, with the government. Instead, what they're doing is sort of trying to tuck in behind the government and see what happens, see how, um, uh, how reality is shaped by the post-pandemic period, rather than being an active participant in the shaping of reality. And that's what political leadership is. Political leadership is, uh, yes, you see where people are, but you're trying to take them to a particular place. You're trying to construct a social majority for a set for your political program. And the problem is, if you don't have a political program, then you can't construct a social majority and you're just left twisting in the wind. And just to give an example of that, I mean, Annalise Dodds, who Zoe, you know, correctly says is actually an interesting politician. I've got a huge amount of respect for her, though people at the various Labour figures believe she's bedeviled with excessive caution, that she's actually a very, very cautious and often paralysed by that caution. But in terms of, you know, and this isn't to have a go at Annalise Dodds because senior Labour figures are being sent to TV studios to have to uh, try and make sense or articulate completely indefensible or or, or political positions which cannot be articulated in a compelling way. Let's just give an example. She was on Mar uh, this Sunday, uh, today if you're watching live. Let's just see what she said about uh, universal credit. What is the case against Labour saying, keep the £20 uplift for good? Well, look, we've set out a range of different measures that we want to see in relation to universal credit. We also want to see, for example, the initial loan turned into a grant. We want to see a strapping of the cap. And we want to make sure that families have the support that they need for the future. That's why we said during this pandemic, we said it many, many months ago, and the government is trailing in the wake of this that we needed to see that uplift maintained during okay. the pandemic but i'm not going to abandon I'm, our commitment to reform no, sure. universal I'm, credit I'm, I'm because no, i'm it's not needed. expecting you to i am just slightly in fact quite a lot perplexed at the moment because it seems to me that supporting uh, an in perpetuity 20 pounds extra on universal credit is exactly the kind of thing that a labor party coming out of a pandemic could say yes to and you can't why not but, but andrew we've been clear that we don't want to stick with this system for the reasons that i've just set out it's been shown to manifestly not support people in the way that they need it's missed out huge numbers mm. of people who've needed support people have got to wait for five but it's what there is weeks now. It's what before there is they now. get that help mm. 
And that's why we've said to government some time ago, be clear about that mm. £20 uplift while we're in the middle of this pandemic. Actually get rid of that right. five-week okay. wait as well. Now, I find that incredibly frustrating and stressful to watch. And- <laughs> The thing is, though, Owen, because everybody's... I've had, my WhatsApp has been live with this all day. Everybody's like, what on earth? Who comes to that question with a kind of technical, the technocratic answer? It's just so stupid. But actually, I think if she just been... If she, all, all that needs is like a five-degree change, that answer, which would have been, yeah, we keep the 20-quid uplift until we reform the whole system because the whole system is terrible and people are living in poverty on it whether they've got the 20 quid or not, that would have been fine. And that is effectively what she's saying. She's saying the universal credit system creates poverty. It creates poverty with the five-week wait. It creates poverty by being badly administered. It creates poverty by not being enough. And we need to change it, which none of us would disagree with, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what I found completely incomprehensible about what she said then, because she could say, well, of course we support a 20 pound uplift to support people in desperate circumstances but we will reform the system or change the system to create a new one that supports people and their families better than this one and to make an argument you know she could have said we've seen you know throughout the country people in my constituency driven into poverty and hardship and insecurity because but instead she's on the back foot she's on the actual back foot in a question about universal credit with andrew marr himself looking completely you know perplexed i mean james what do you think i mean look you had to send you sent uh back in the day shallow ministers on tv to deliver a line and and the whole point of these interviews you've got to have a cut through line but i can't think at the moment it's very difficult to see what are the cut through messages and the labor leadership team do complain they don't have all they say they they admit the problem they have is a lack of cut through but i don't see how they can have cut through because i don't know what their cut through lines are so it's quite clear actually what her lines are because she keeps on saying them it's just the lines are crap and um you know she's trying to say um we want um business loans to be like uh, student loans you know that's what she tries to pivot to you know she, they've got their kind of three technical things that the, the you know Keir laid out in his speech how we're going to fundamentally set the tone for the 2020s or whatever it was and then came up with those three tiny policies the the, the keep for a bit, the uplift in UC, the tuition um, business loans become loans like tuition fees and a, a third one I can't remember off the top of my head. And so she's clearly trying to say that. The problem is they, they don't want to have big dividing lines with the government or with anything else. They, they seem to not want to commit to anything and therefore to be frightened of their own shadow. So, of course, what she's trying to say, as in intellectually what it means is, as Zoe said, is the system's crap. Put it up 20, 20 quid uh, for now. That's fine, but we're actually going to completely reform the system, and we'll bring in, in yeah, we'll bring in a different one. And that is actually what Labour's existing uh, policy program is um, from uh, from the last election. Um, but instead of having clear things to say, they don't want to have these clear dividing lines because they don't want to they they don't want to lay out policy. That would be a policy commitment to uh, to, to to scrap UC and replace it with something else. Um, you'd have to say a bit of what you wanted to replace it with, and it's it's all in this bit about how they think they can get away with um, either not just not being Jeremy Corbyn or 
um, the so-called talking about values, you know, and, and you can signal everything with values. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work. It's all about trying to not say anything when actually politics should be about trying to say things and try and for something to have meaning, it needs to be something that your opponent wouldn't say. There needs to be clear where you stand relative to, to the other side. Yeah, I mean, I mean just because there, there was a third, if you're talking about Keir's speech, there was a, the, the third policy was this mini saver bond or muni bond. Um, now, it, it, you're right, it sounds like a really boring technical policy and it doesn't have, it doesn't sound like it has any relation to people who don't have savings, um, which is most people. Um, so it sounds like this is a kind of extremely abstruse, n- never mind boring, it sounds like it's quite a kind of niche weird party but actually the the whole kind of concept of that of that bond being a kind of pro-social investment vehicle is a building block towards reshaping the notion of investment away from financialization and away from um, the shadow economy away from derivatives and towards concrete palpable things in communities that make a difference and which are instantly predominantly green energy and other green initiatives and there is a there's a there's a load of literature and there are a load of quite political politically radical people like Anne Pettifer who have done tons and tons of work on this so you've got a kind of fintech you've got the sort of anarchist fintech world you've got the kind of green red world you've got quite a lot of people invested in this as an idea and quite a meaningful idea you know not a tiny idea but a big idea the problem is and this is what this is the, the reason I went on about it for so long is because I think it ties into a wider problem. Is as you say, if, unless you've got, unless people know who you are politically, no single policy makes any difference. It just doesn't. And this is a problem Ed Miliband had a lot. That you, you know, people, people, he could say freeze heating bills, and then people will go, well, "What's the point of that?" Or he could say he could he could do all kinds of fixes. But because he wouldn't say who he was politically, his fixes didn't ever cohere into a constellation. And so nobody could ever follow them or rely on them. And I think that's a really, that's a kind of really dangerous thing. The thing is with Annalise is that you're not, you're not actually looking for, one isn't looking for her to articulate the grand vision of this Labour Party or any other Labour Party because she's not that chancellor. Gordon Brown wasn't that chancellor. Alistair Darlingshaw as hell wasn't that chancellor. Um, chancellors who kind of are the charisma in the machine are really, really rare. And, you know, they're a bit of a mixed blessing. So I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't criticise her for not being that person. But I do think that until so, somebody has to want to be the, the kind of showman in this. And no, at the moment, nobody does want that job. I, I, I care much less about whether someone's going to who's going to be the the, the showman or, or or showwoman or have the have the charisma, but just who's going to lay out the dividing lines. I don't mind if they say it terribly charismatically or not, but um, you know who is going to who is going to lay out clearly this is what we stand for, and the way you do that is not by being brilliant at giving uh, giving speeches. It's to have content in them, like you know exactly. Like Zoe was just saying, the, this policy is like a building block towards something bigger. You know, talk about the impacts. Talk about the green investment. Talk about the ending the rule of the bankers and instead making uh, investment not support billionaires, but everybody in the UK or whatever it might be. 
and have concrete policies that that show that that's where you are and that's on the side you are and people can understand who you are by who attacks you you know if labor come out with a policy and um some bankers say that this is a bad policy that's actually really good because that shows people are ah, these people don't like it so it means it's bad for them that might mean it's good for us yeah yeah i i mean in terms of you know that he did this big speech which they they really did over i mean they 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 hyped it up it was a big defining kind of leadership setting out his stall i suppose the question is i mean someone here james varbalas is starmer in danger of drifting further right the new labor gordon brown implemented a windfall tax in his very first budget i suppose what i'd say is firstly one of the problems with ed miliband's leadership is it kept jumping from analysis to analysis without having a a, a vision to to back it up so you started do you remember it was the squeezed middle then the promise of Britain, which was about a younger generation not having uh, the same chan- chances in life as older people, uh, one nation Britain, and cost of living crisis. And and yet, you know, we had all that talk about, say, the cost of living crisis, and then in the end, the promise of an £8 minimum wage by 2020, which actually the Tories themselves ended up exceeding. I mean, but, but in terms of that point about New Labour, I do think this is an interesting point, because... In the late 1990s, New Labour did have clear dividing lines on policy with the Conservatives. They had policies that the Tories would oppose, like the minimum wage, like gay rights, like a windfall tax and privatised utilities, like devolution, for example. So constitutional, social and political. And isn't the problem now that today's Tories, uh, who are a wily bunch, will actually happily appropriate any modest economic interventionist reform that Labour offers and repackage it. The point about the British bonds, the recovery bonds, it's fine as it, 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 you know, I mean, it does help middle-class savers, uh, which is an interesting kind of payoff at the end of a speech about inequality, but it's fine in as far as it goes. But, you know, a right-wing think tank, the Adam Smith Institute came up with it, so the Tories would happily introduce it themselves. Isn't that the danger that today's, in the, the today's iteration of Tories in this crisis, if Labour don't offer a genuinely radical alternative, then the Tories will just appropriate any mild tinkering policies and leave them with nothing distinct to offer. Sorry. Well, I mean, my feeling is that because they worry a lot about the Tories stealing their ideas, right, which I think is preposterous, because if you think your ideas are good, it's it's really good if somebody steals them. You can't be ma- You can't be making shopping list policies as a way of driving footfall towards your party, like like making milk 30p a pint. It's, it, that's just not a beating political heart. What I, if I mean, in basically they need to, exactly as James says, sorry to agree so much, they need to articulate some enemies. Until they've got some enemies and made some enemies and gone after some enemies, nobody's gonna know who they are. And once they have got some enemies, then it doesn't matter if the Tories kind of nick shiny things off their Christmas tree, they've still got the tree. So they can they can still, you know, anything the Tories steal, they can just go out and say, look, what a brilliant government we will be. The, the, the actual government doesn't have any ideas that aren't ours anyway. So I don't think it matters at all. But what really is catastrophic is if you won't have, if you won't have enemies. And I think the problem is, is that, and this is a problem I think with inexperienced comms. Inexperienced political comms always thinks that you're doing fine if you haven't if you haven't had any bad headlines, and they always think, oh, phew, we got we got another week under the wire without one of the fabled attacks from the right wing press. 
oh, this is fantastic, you know, not a single bad headline in that in this many days, as though a bad headline were a kind of nuclear spill at a facility. But actually, if you can't, if you don't make enemies and you don't get any bad headlines, it's it's really, really hard to come back from the from the place where there's no point to you. And that I think is at the moment, I think the most important thing is not for Keir to come out and say, um, yeah, I mean, I'm really in favor of, of, of a massive corporation tax hike, or even I'm really in favor of a windfall tax on super profits, or even I'm really in favor of completely reconfiguring tax as a conversation. So we're not talking about parceling little bits from the middle class to the lower middle class. We're actually talking about the people who have who've captured the wealth. We're talking in a completely different way. We're talking internationally and we're talking about, you know, gigantic amounts of wealth such as none of us could conceive. Even though I think all those things are true, that's not what I think is the most important thing to come out and say. The most important thing to come out and say is like fundamentally, what what are we against? And at the moment, that's they're really struggling to do that because they just, you know, they as James said, it would be great if the bankers disagreed with them, but they don't want anybody to disagree with them. Apart from the left. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, but you know, which, which is quite a boring trick because um, uh, you know the ground has shifted. I think you know the, I completely agree with with Zoe that the, the, the you know making enemies is a good thing. Um, and Owen, to your to your question, it's such a great problem to have. I mean, do you think that um, after in uh, in the late seventies, after you know the, that Labour government had its monetarist turn and. Callahan gave the speech that Milton Friedman said was the best speech given by any politician explaining um, uh, his views. And there was a turn away from from Keynesianism. You know, Margaret Thatcher didn't go, didn't sort of try to tuck in behind them and 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 not oppose it. She tried to take it much further. I mean, if they if the Tories have been have been forced by the failure of neoliberalism to reproduce itself, the failure of austerity to work as a fix that lasts longer than uh, than a few years, that toxic combination that kept um, you know kept the, the the ruling class going of uh, of austerity and migrant baiting that doesn't that isn't really working. So they're having to move ground. That's fantastic, and that's a great opportunity. And Keir should seize it and take thing you know take things much further. And yeah, have terrible headlines in uh, in the in the mail and 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 the right wing press and be attacked. And have Goldman Sachs put out um, warning notes of, uh, about them. That's that's good. I mean, in terms of oh, go, go on, Zay, Zay, go on. Something. Oh. About, sorry, if, if no, yeah, go for it. Go, go. I wanted, to talk, I wanted to ask James a little bit about the early days of Corbyn, like in that kind of 2015, 2016 and a half, but kind of pre-Brexit. Um, I remember it used to really bother Seamus that. Um, the, 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 he, he was astonished to find that the lobby actually lied about what he'd said and astonished to find that he would say something was deep background and it would appear with his name on it. You know, he was astonished by the sheer amount of partisan dishonour that happened in the press. And I felt like he found the, the, the process of making enemies quite stressful in the early days. But obviously, as a team, you kind of got to a place where you didn't care and you quite enjoyed it. Loved it. Did you ever? Did you love it? I mean, did yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely it? loved it. That was that that when 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 we were winning was when we were be, was was when we were being attacked for something that we had put forward. Right? Yeah, when yeah. we when when uh, uh, J P Morgan or 
or Goldman Sachs or the privatized national grid or we're being attacked because we're we're, we're crazy because we want to have public ownership of, of utilities. This is the best thing ever because we live in an attention economy and the, our opponents are bringing the attention to the things that we want to talk about and how we will transform society. You know, yeah. uh, the, having a series of uh, positive splashes of the observer every Sunday adds up to absolutely the square root of FA, right? Because no one in, no one notices it. Con yeah, yeah. You know, that's why the leaking of the manifesto, for example, was so good because it, it was a, it was huge controversy. Oh my God, we've got to pay attention to this. And everyone said, oh, these policies are, are, are mad, but the majority of people supported them. So yeah, I mean, it, it takes, it means you have to approach things in a, in a, in a different way. But yeah. you, you know, you want to have rows, and that is that is fun. It's just you know the rows you want are the ones on the issues that you wanted on, not you know endless rows about other, you know other things. <laughs> other things. Other things. Yeah, other things. In terms of this, that point you made about you know the one enemy they're prepared to kind of take on or, or construct is is the left. What I think is interesting about that is, I mean, it's, there's no question at all that very senior officials in the Labour Party, it's the leaked report that itself underlined, regard anyone to the left of Gordon Brown as a trot, um, and and have spent much of their younger years watching Neil Kinnock's 1985 speech at Labour Party conference, denouncing militant, um, and kind of listen to that as, as they, on loop, as they as they lull themselves to sleep. But 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 what I think interesting is, in the late, in the 90s, the late 90s, third-way type politics dominated on both sides of the Atlantic. You had the Clintons of the White House, you had Blair here, you had Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, you had Lionel Jospin uh, in France, various Nordic countries and, you know, Spain for a while. That kind of iteration of social democracy was very dominant. But today, if you look at centre-left administrations such as they are in Europe and the United States, they've all actually come to power with some form of accommodation with the left. So in Spain, the socialists are in coalition with the radical left Podemos. The, the Portuguese socialists made... Uh, a pact with the two radical left uh, formations there. Uh, same in Denmark. And in the United States, whilst the Clintonians went, you know, Bernie bros and were very aggressive towards Bernie Sanders, Biden et al. did actually think they did need to make some sort of accommodation, however much it might be disingenuous, but with with the, 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 the rise, the, the ascendant left within the Democrats. So, I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? They might get all ice picky, but actually, the left exists. It didn't. The left emerged in Britain with Corbynism at the same time as Bernie Sanders and Podemos and all these other formations. Not some weird historical accident, but for structural reasons in society. Like, we can't actually be wished away. So them defining themselves against the left isn't actually as clever on its own terms as maybe they think it is. No, it's not clever. I mean, it's not clever at all because it's not getting them anywhere. I mean... <laughs> Uh, and this is the, the the thing that I find quite frustrating. I understand that every leader wants to define themselves in some part as different from the previous one, and and in some part in some way against them. So no, don't begrudge uh, Keir Starmer and his team his team doing that. But you know, people have will notice that Keir Starmer isn't Jeremy Corbyn because Keir Starmer isn't Jeremy Corbyn. You know, that if all of your comms are structured around showing that you are a different person to someone that isn't you, I mean, people notice that very quickly. Go, OK, fine. Yeah, no, we've worked out you're not Jeremy Corbyn. Now, who are you? Um, and they're left with, you know, 
with, you know, sort of without anything. What Keir won the Labour leadership election on was, um, you know, a superficially attractive promise of something like we'll we'll keep like eighty percent of uh, Corbyn uh, Corbyn policies, but we'll add to that greater competence, and so we'll win. And instead, we've got none of those things. You know, we've got far from eighty percent of of Corbyn policies, far from a competent. Uh, administration, and we're not winning. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, Zoe, what do you think about, in terms of Keir Starmer himself, I mean, he, he obviously wasn't actually in the Labour Party until 2014 because he was a civil servant. He was director of public prosecutions. And I, the sense that people who know him well is that he actually, in his head, does, genuinely doesn't think he's a factional figure. And, 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 and he genuinely, you know, he, he, as far as his allies are concerned, their, their view is, no, we're not waging war on the left. And actually, we welcome uh, left-wing ideas and input into our, into our policy programme. And... Is it, do you think, possible that he genuinely does regard himself as non-factional, but actually is perhaps naive about Labour politics and the volume, the, the vacuum has been filled with people like, I'll just name him, Matt Pound, who's the former National Secretary of Labour First, who are the old Labour right, who really love ice-picking the left more than, any, more than anything. Uh, and, you know, people like that are clearly there in the, in the operation. Do you think that's, do you think that, is that a generous way of looking at it? I mean, look, this is it, it's really tricky, this, because I don't think, I think there's a mischaracterization of what's going on. So it definitely, there is a, definitely kicking Jeremy Corbyn out. It looks like it's part of a package with an overall purge of the left, which is then traced back to the factors, the factions around Keir Starmer, who you could either intuit or demonstrate were kind of anti-militant, anti-left, anti-whatever. I think there's actually, I, I think, A, there is certainly insufficient recognition of the fact that he needs the left of the party. You know, I mean, he should have put Clive Lewis in the shadow cabinet. He, he, need, he needs that bit of kind of, he needs that bit of radicalism and he needs that bit of fire and he needs that bit of excitement. If he if he's going to maintain the number the sheer number of constituencies that he needs to maintain, I don't mean actual constituencies. I mean you know there's no point actually getting a kind of lukewarm acceptance from 
the 35 plus swing voter if you're going to torch your entire stand base in the 35 and unders. It's just, you know, it's, it's it just on a kind of numbers game, it doesn't work. But kind of more importantly, I think he's. I, I think there is a problem with engagement with the membership as a whole. And, you know, the, mo the majority of the membership is not hard left. The majority of the membership is sort of compassy, so soft left, soft left, soft green, you know, would be prepared to put up with much more radical and much more radical economic policy. Like we're quite the majority of the party was actually quite happy, was very happy with Corbyn, for example, but wouldn't necessarily describe itself as hard left. So it was the, the, the membership as a whole, people, when they accept how left it is, they talk about it as though it's completely different from the rest of the country. And when they talk, when they accept how similar it is to the rest of the country, they talk about it as though it's not at all left wing. But the truth is that the membership of the Labour Party is both quite similar to the rest of the country and quite left wing. And I feel like what's going wrong is that they're making that mistake that, that Labour leaders who lack confidence always make, which is to think that the members of their own party have to be sidelined in order that they can build a programme that the rest of the country will take seriously. Now, it's just not true. You know, the, the Corbyn was never more successful than when he was at the height of his popularity in his own party and, his height, and at the height of his popularity in the country as a whole. And the thing which destroyed it for him was losing popularity within the party, which was over Brexit, which then lost him popularity with the country as a whole. And they, they are indivisible. You know, you cannot say, oh, I'm not I'm not interested in preaching to the choir. I want to go out and talk to the people who don't believe in God yet. The people who don't believe in God yet will not listen until they hear a choir. They want the choir. That's the point of the choir. So I feel like and I feel when this is probably the thing I feel most dispirited about. I feel like there is a lot of very inexperienced people in the team. I don't feel like there's enough kind of really rock solid Labour Party hinterland. I mean, I mean, you say Keir wasn't a party member because he was a civil servant, but he was very active. I mean, he sort of, you know, from the age of 14 to the age of becoming a civil servant, he was very active in, in a really, really kind of weird bit of the Labour Party which is, you know, the, the bit of the Labour Party that wants a revolution from Surrey. It was it was not an easy road that he travelled, and I do think that his Labour hinterland is quite solid. Um, but I think he hasn't got the parliamentary experience to understand that actually the party is, the party is the kind of cross-section of the country that he needs to win. It's not what blinds him to it. It's not a different interest group. It is the interest group. If we're going to be maybe a bit sort of generous here, do you think part of the problem is this? When Corbynism, you know, we had the rise of Corbynism in 2015, all the other political wings of the Labour Party were politically and intellectually exhausted. And, and that can't be divorced from this, which is not often spoken about enough, a general crisis of European social democracy, because Labour sister parties are all generally in various degrees of, of, of often existential crisis. In fact, in a far worse state, many of them than, than the British Labour Party is currently in or, or faced in 2019. 
but that actually before that the left itself was very defensive we were defined by what we were opposed to rather than against stop privatization stop cuts stop war but because we had no clear there was no obvious route for us to achieve political power there wasn't much thought put into laying the political and intellectual foundations of what 21st century socialism looks like corbyn came particularly with the 2017 election that kind of provoked this whole ecosystem of think tanks and economists who who really did lay that foundation Whilst Corbyn's opponents spent over, well, sent half a decade in exile, and they didn't spend that time actually thinking through what they actually wanted themselves. They are, like the left was, defined by what they're opposed to rather than what they're actually for in any compelling sense. Their cupboard is empty. The only, the intellectual cupboard of the Labour Party is being stocked by the left. And the debate is which of the left policies do you take and which do you discard? But, but the other problem is, I mean, what would their alternative to those policies be? Because if you look at Labour's sister parties, as I've said, vaguely kept closer towards the third way rule book, and they're all in existential crisis. So, what? I mean, what do you think? Do you think that's the problem? They just they there isn't a coherent alternative being offered by by those who aren't on the left of the Labour Party. Yeah, I think. I mean, yeah, if you look at um, you know, the, the German uh, Social Democratic Party who are somewhere in the teens um, uh, in, in polls or the French Socialist Party, which basically doesn't exist anymore, um, they've, you know, they've, des- they've destroyed themselves through uh, extreme accommodation with, um, uh, you know, essentially with, with neoliberalism. So the kind of um, what the Blairite policy prospectus would build, like the continuity Blairite policy prospectus would be of kind of uh some mild liberal you know not necessarily mild liberal social reforms coupled with intense marketization and uh neoliberalism um you know it, it isn't going to be a go we, there was a party actually um I, I i people may have forgotten them but they they briefly shone in existence in in 2019 that stood on that kind of pure um, the pure kind of pro-austerity, privatisation, uh, pro-war, coupled with re- Remain and, and social liberalism um, uh, party, a cut-tinged PLC. Uh, and, um, you know, they sadly only briefly flickered and then, then went into, into abeyance. And it's because there isn't a social base for those policies. So, yes, they don't, there aren't any ideas. Straight after cut-tinged PLC was was formed, Tom Watson set up um, this so this group called Future Britain Group of uh, Labour MPs and members of the House of Lords um, who were sort of Brownites and Blairites, who was meant to be bringing them together to come up with policy ideas. And they came up with precisely zero, or at least zero that were, that were ever published. So yeah, the cupboard is completely bare. I mean, I just want to, for, for no reason apart from meanness, I want to recall the 2015 leadership election when Liz Kendall had so little to, she had so little to say that wasn't simply anti the left. She had so little in the way of intellectual, you know, ambition for the party or the country that there was that Daily Mash headline that said her policy agenda was to find the last coal miner in the country and punch him in the face. (laughs) I can never remember when anybody ever says what Liz Kendall stand stand for. I'm halfway through the coal miner before I remember it was a joke. I mean, you know, they just don't. And you have the same experience now arguing with people like Caroline Flint. It's always very splenetic and it's always 
you you poison this people like you by going for this bullshit utopia that the people of the country aren't interested in you poisoned it and you always want to say well what 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 but how, you know which what what was your poison i don't remember it, any poison i don't remember anything at all and i think that is certainly a, it's certainly a trait of the kind of center of the party that they don't really even feel the need to have, you know, a, a program. They feel their kind of abiding spirit is to kill off the left bit of their party, and then success will just accrue to them as the like gravity, like gravity is determining it. Now, the, the only thing I would say is I don't think that is true of Keir Starmer, and I think there is something there is something interesting about him as a leader. Um, I don't weirdly. I think, you know, he doesn't consider himself factional. I don't think he is factional. And I think that what's useful about that, the kind of non-factionalism coupled with the kind of loyally, kind of intellectual bent, is that he kind of, he, he really genuinely is capable of, a, of examining an idea on its own merit and not thinking where would, where would this position me on, on the left and right, but rather does this, does this, you know, gel with my strategic aims. And that's actually quite rare in the Labour Party, especially people who are kind of Labour born and bred in terms of their careers, who joined the party at 21 as a spad or whatever, and then get, and then just carried on. They find it really, really difficult to examine an idea on merit. All they can do is examine it through wh- where historically it fell on the spectrum of left to right and where they consider themselves to be on that spectrum now. Now, the problem, I think, is that while I don't think it is has got that thing of like trying to position himself left to right, the, the, he's falling into the same trap that Ed Miliband fell into really badly, which is just thinking, which is believing focus groups are you know some kind of ancient sooth, and you can never go against them, and you can never you can never upset never upset the focus group. It's it's like the kind of don't scare the horses version of banking. It's, you know, this is the public is this kind of skittish, wayward, willful beast that might at any time run off in the wrong direction and then you'll never catch it. And I think that is that is actually the main problem is that, he, you know, whenever something comes up and the focus groups say one thing, anything that he thinks which disagrees with the focus group, he then discards, which is just catastrophic. You know, you, you, you can't you can't even find your own true north doing that let alone describe your true north to the rest of the country last i just want to talk as well just finally about the pandemic because i know i'm taking up your valuable time thank you very much though both of you but we've got about 10 minutes but so peter donovan says do you do you think keir starmer needs to say more about what he wants to do by the time of the next election do you think he got broadsided he says by the vaccine success by the government now labor did do this get britain vaccinated curiously a political campaign now i think it's kind of described by keir starmer's allies as an attempt to show that labor is patriotic and cares about its country i mean I, cynically i might suggest that they thought maybe the vaccine program wasn't going to go very well and actually they're you know they're big what was the big offering for a while it was we're competent in a way our predecessor and boris johnson isn't that's what they were trying to convey the vaccine rolls roll out kind of nukes the competence uh, divide, divide, uh, dividing line. But I suppose, I mean, on the pandemic, 
the way I see it, and I'm interested to see what you think about Peter O'Donovan in terms of setting out a broader stall as well. In, in what focus groups tell Labour, and the focus groups they're relying on are people who voted Conservative in 2019 who they deem to be swing voters, is don't play politics. Don't play politics with a pandemic. We want you to pull together behind the government. And the thing is, I bet you that's what focus groups told the Conservatives during the financial crash of 2008. But the Tories didn't do that. They, they said, we're going to stick to this mantra that Labour spent too much money, even though the Tories had backed them pound for pound, uh, and that's and we have to clear up the mess that they left. And soon those focus groups were full of people saying saying that because the, the Tories didn't just repeat back what the focus groups told them. They realised you can make the political weather. But do you think that's the problem? The, the vaccine thing, as Peter Donovan says, broadsided, it has been a tremendous success. And given Labour has essentially let the Tories get away with one of the most catastrophic handlings of the pandemic on earth, it leaves them with very little left. The vaccine success was a, and continues to be a great opportunity to argue for what a, uh, what the UK could look like after the pandemic. Why is it that we have had such an atrocious handling of, uh, of the pandemic? Test and trace was outsourced, um, Serco ripoff, huge amounts of cronyism and corruption, dodgy PPE contracts left, right and centre. Now, why is that bit of state capacity useless? I mean, you know, world-beatingly terrible, while science and the NHS were able to combine to deliver uh, actually a very good uh, vaccine rollout. It's because those are, the, those are two bits of the state that have been relatively insulated from the last 40 years of neoliberalism. So you could make the argument, say, if you want to have uh, public services, public enterprise, a public realm that is as good as the vaccine rollout, what we need is to kick out the privateers, bring things back in-house, have more public ownership and more democratic direction of both public services and the economy. Now, you can turn this, the, the fact that the vaccine has been good, which is a very good thing. I mean, we've all, I, I mean, I know all of us are sitting at home in huge relief that it's going quite well, or it's going very well, you can turn that into an argument for what are the bits of it that, that have made that good and how can we do more of that and how can that be how can that be progressive? But instead of that, there's been, you know, uh, you know do it faster, do more of the vaccine where, where nobody's listening. And actually, that's the playing politics thing. You know, when people talk about playing politics, playing politics, you know, doing politics can mean two different things. One is something that Keir, I think, actually, lots of the public think he has done, which is like petty political point scoring. Do it faster. Be better. Publish your strategy now. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, oh, if they'd done this, you know, the, the Captain Hindsight or Captain Foresight or whatever, I can't really keep up with it. Then the other thing is playing politics is in setting out an alternative, saying what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. That is, and what support people need. How can people be helped through the pandemic? That doesn't seem like playing political games. That seems like you're arguing from principle about, and with honesty, about what will be better for people in the country. And people don't hate that. So I think they've taken entirely the wrong, the wrong lesson from, uh, from those focus groups and actually ended up doing the type of opposition that, uh, that people don't like. What do you think, Zoe, in terms of how they've how they've played it with the obviously the horrific national emergency that has taken over our lives for a year and killed so many of our fellow citizens? What do you what do you what what was their strategy and what, what do you think? Well, I, think there, there, I mean, at the start, there was a genuine sense that 
actually Boris Johnson was so incompetent and so terrifyingly um, hand, you know, cat-handed, haphazard, that it was actually going to lead to many, many thousands of deaths. And I think then, you know, you never heard focus groups telling Keir not to play politics then when he was doing PMQs and saying, you know, why is this so shit? People like that, um, and I think, and I think because it was they, their perception, they were genuinely in fear for their lives, and they were right to be. Um, that you know, obviously, the vaccine is a completely different situation. And I agree with James. I think that, that you, you can't not celebrate the vaccine. The vaccine is a fantastic, fantastic piece of news. Fantastic, fantastically well executed. You have to say this is a triumph for the NHS, it's a triumph for science, it's a triumph for universities, it's a triumph for the NHS staff, it's a triumph for volunteers, it's a triumph for society. Let's say it's a triumph for, for, you know, all these, the minute the government steps aside, stops giving contracts to its friends and lets people show how much they care about one another, then we can be incredible. Um, and that shouldn't be that hard. I don't think that's a very difficult political, you know, to be fair, I think that's such an easy political leap to make that Ed Davey could make it. Um, but obviously there is, I think it's already gone too far down the route of, you know, the Conservatives taking it as their own political win. And by the time all the adults in the country have been vaccinated once, it's going to be a ticker tape parade. You know, it's going to be a Falklands moment. And it, it, they are going to say this is, you know, Boris Johnson's triumph. And that is the way Tories are. You know, they privatise the wins and they socialise the losses. And they, they've done that since forever. And they're doing that with the virus. So I feel very profoundly disappointed that, that, that nobody saw that coming. Although, you know, as James said, pretty much everybody did see it coming. And I think a lot of people did, did warn of it. Um, it just, it, it does go to show, and I think you were talking about Tom Cabezi the other day, Owen. Focus groups, people who've been anywhere near focus groups know that they always say don't politicise things. That's like, it's like a thing. It's like when you go into a focus group, that's the thing that you're allowed to say that nobody's going to call you stupid for saying. But I think that's the one thing you should never listen to with a focus group, <laughs> because everything is political. You know, not politicising is political. So, so, well, you know, I'm trying not to sound too depressed, especially seeing that we're nearly going to end. But that's the thing I found the most depressing is this incredibly lumbering and, you know, unsophisticated response to what is going to be the defining political narrative of at least the next 12 months. Amen. I think it was, a, sorry, I, was a, I think it, they had a bit of a will win by default strategy, like, uh, you know, similar to, to Biden, maybe thinking, the other side is so incompetent, so so out of control, so out of touch that all we have to do is sit here and um, we'll get uh, and we'll we'll get support simply for not being not being the other guy. Now Boris Johnson isn't Donald Trump, um, uh, and and it hasn't worked out at all. You can't just you can't just win by default, or if you win by default, it's not because you've done anything good. It's just because you happen to be sitting there, which is no basis for um for for winning a, a case for social transformation i mean if you want to be prime minister so that you can change the country in some rather profound and positive and socially progressive way 
then you need to win a mandate for it. You don't win a mandate for it by just not being as bad as Boris Johnson. And just say finally, let's see if we can end on some sort of optimistic note. Might be a tough tough one, guys, but let's give it a go. I mean, Aidan Zeb Woodward uh, asked for Labour to finally win an election again. Do you think it's likely that we'll see more of the centrism we saw in the 90s, 2000s, or hard socialism? I guess what I'd ask is, where do you think this is going to politically sell, settle? Where do you think the end point politically of the... In terms of... I mean, look, it's 2024. I mean, this is probably a stupid question, but I don't care. Where do you think it's going to settle politically? Uh, do you think actually those 10 pledges may well find themselves intact in some form uh, by the time of the 2017 election? Take tuition fees. Keir Starmer did make the case for abolishing uh, tuition fees at an event, and, and it would be such a totemic up yours to young people if they drop that pledge. So just that as an example. Or do you think it's just going to end up back to the sort of stuff we saw in 2015, which was a minimum wage by eight, eight pounds by 2020 and a bit lower student debt, for example. Where do you think, and where do you think, what do you think the left, what kind of pressure do you think the left can meaningfully exert, if any? Zoe. I actually agree with something James said earlier, which it, we, on that point about all the ideas coming from the left. The, the, the Labour Party is never going to win until they identify their giant evils. And I think their giant evils are very likely, once they have identified them, to be the same as Biden's, right? They're going to be climate change, recovering from the pandemic, the health inequalities un, unleashed by the, the pandemic, wage stagnation, and A and other probably around, around a kind of contract with the youth. And I think, you know, just as a kind of opening catch-all, we've got to stop the politics in which the youth get absolutely screwed at every turn. It's, it's just got to stop. So if you kind of, once they've identified those five, those five evils or five similar evils or whatever, once they've got their five enemies, then it, 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 there will be a more collective response to building a programme against each one or building something you know, building some kind of creative response to each. And by necessity, that energy will come from the left of the party and also the kind of greener wing of the party. Because as we've seen over 10 years now, the middle of the party doesn't have a response to anything like an enemy. It has a response to, if, if its enemy is like a bad headline or another member of its own party, then... It, it has something, but in terms of large structural problems, it just doesn't have the response. So I think by default, the response will always come from the left. But actually, unless they can find a way, A, unless they have the courage to take on the enemies, and B, unless they have the kind of open-mindedness and the open-tent philosophy, it's, not gonna, it's just not going to build. But I haven't given up on it. I really haven't, because I do think that this has been a very bruising month or two. And I don't think whatever the, the failures of the leadership in the shadow cabinet, uh, there are some very talented people in the shadow cabinet. And, and you know, talented. there is a lot of talent and a lot of desire for change. And at the moment, there's a kind of pipeline problem. But I do genuinely believe it's going to change course. What do you think, James? Where do you think it's going to head? I, I, I mean... I... I don't know, but um, I know what could help shape it and therefore what people watching right now um, should be, I think, should be trying to do. Uh, I, I mean, the first, the positive thing, right, which is that uh, the the series of like interlocking crises that we have from neoliberalism, climate breakdown, 
are not going to be resolved by the system as it currently is. They do not have uh, any solutions for it. They can't paper over the cracks, which means that this pressure, this drive for much more fundamental change will will keep coming. It's not like it's just ended because um, uh, the Labour Party lost a, lost an election in, in, in 2019. We're seeing this not only in the UK, in lots of other countries in, uh, in, in Europe and North America. So, you know, firstly, there's so much to play for. And then we look at how can we, how can we affect the world? You know, we've got two major ways. One is through building the movements that ultimately are the forces that shape history, that shape the terrain around politics, that will shape the ground on which Keir Starmer and his team sits. So the labour movement, the environmental movement, the anti-racist movement, uh, the tenant, uh, national tenants movement and so on. The stronger these are, the more uh, connected and forceful and radical they are the more the ground will shift around the Labour leadership and they will be pulled in that direction, but also the stronger progressive forces will be in the country as a whole and the better it will be full stop. And then the second thing is those of us who are in the Labour Party can force through as much as we possibly can the solutions that come from these movements, the solutions to the to the crises that we, that we face, um, the policies for 21st century socialism, we can push them through the party, we can hold Keir as much as we can to the 10 pledges, and then we'll see one way or the other, then he has the choice. Either they will break definitively from that future-orientated project, which is for the many and is against the few, or he will come to some accommodation with it. And the best that we can do is we can force that onto the agenda place ourselves in the strongest possible position and make that choice have to be made. And hopefully that choice is made in the direction of, uh, of taking on board a lot of our, our prescript policies and our prescriptions and championing some of our causes. But we can't determine that for him. We can only do what we can do. A rallying cry at the end. Things we love to see. Yes. Come on. We went through a... It was an interesting narrative arc, but I think we ended in a good place. So thank you both for your incredible insights. It was a big, big honour, big pleasure. Zoe, your room, Zoe started before and in a kind of nice, breezy, airy, light yeah. room. And now it's it's like you're in, in a slightly scary attic or something. Though. It's pretty scary, doesn't it? Don't, it don't does look worry. a little bit scary don't for those. Worry. I'm not scared and that's what, that's what counts. That's what counts. <laughs> that's what counts. But thank you both. There was a huge amount for people to think over. And I think I, it certainly clarified a lot of my thoughts. And I hope it also did that for others. Great. So thank you both. I will, I will see you soon. Can't wait till we can all have a cheeky cheeky pint in the sun. Roll on June the 21st. Oh, okay. I'm going to be a dis- I'm going to be an absolute disgrace. I'm going to be absolutely dis- I'm doing a massive fitness regime at the moment so I can be a, a kind of hot left-wing Adonis. Not Andrew Adonis. Um, <laughs> And just uh, be a basic gay all summer with my top off. Okay, good luck. Yeah. Thanks, Mary. Cheers. <laughs> Lots of love. I'll see you both soon. Right. Cheers. Oh, they're both great. Uh, so we're very lucky to have them. Um, so before I sign off, uh, what are we doing this week? Oh, okay. We've got an interview with Naomi Klein. That's coming up. Very exciting. She was on fantastic form. I did promise that I would interview people who are... Uh, not of my uh, political uh, disposition. So Claire Fox, 
the former Brexit Party MEP, is being interviewed tomorrow. Uh, and we are lining up a documentary, and I'm trying to work out what we do. I had an idea we'd do one about companies that have profiteered during the pandemic. Basically, any thoughts, any ideas, do let us know. And I'm feeling a bit, I was being a bit, I think it's because I'm not drinking during the week, and then I drink at the weekend, and I get a bad hangover, so that didn't help. But actually, I was in a mild about the Labour leadership situation, and I think, actually... That was very, very helpful. We need to have more of these discussions. It hasn't helped that after the calamity of 2019, we obviously had the pandemic, which stopped us being able to meet in person, discuss these things properly. So that's not been helpful. So these discussions are really important for that reason. Uh, so thank you so much. I hope you're looking after each other. We are going to get there only a few weeks, months ahead, hopefully. And and uh, the summer will be less bleak than what we've had to live through. But I really appreciate, as ever, all of you tuned in. All my love. And I will see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.